Welcome to the Ralph Moore Podcast. Gain a leadership advantage as Ralph pulls wisdom from his bag of over 50 years experience in planting and leading multiplying churches. Our goal is to help you live as a leader you'd want to follow. You'll learn about making disciples and planting churches, but beyond that, you'll gain practical wisdom about subjects like how to manage your team, handling difficult people, pulling a congregation off a growth plateau, and even money management. Hi, and welcome to the podcast. Today, I'm getting to be with a new hero of mine, uh, Michael Cooper. He wrote an incredible book called Ephesiology. It, it, the reason I think it's incredible is it fits with whatever I believe and, and the way that I've structured my life and the ministry. And uh, most of you that are listening to this know about Hope Chapel and the fruit of all that. It comes from Acts chapter 2 in the book of Ephesians. Basically, those are the pillars. And here comes a guy who is a scholar. He's a lot smarter than me. And he wrote something that undergirds everything that I think my life is built on. And so I just mm-hmm. want to welcome Michael to the show. Mike, welcome. And thanks for taking time to be with us. Well, thanks, Ralph. I, gosh, you should be the one I call a hero, not you calling me a a hero, but I, I'm I'm grateful for that, and grateful that physiology has been meaningful to to you, and uh, hopefully to others as well. You know, one of the things that impressed me about the book was that somebody who's coming from the more the academic world could write in such practical terms. The the book is absolutely pragmatic, and mm. uh, it, it it seems like the the world of those who study and the world of those who are on the front edge came together in that book. And I, I really, really appreciate that. Could you just kind of get us into a little bit of your history? Uh, I, I actually like to go further back. You know, how did you come to the Lord? How did you end up doing what you do? And then let's talk a little bit about how you wrote, why you wrote the book and, and, and why and how. Sure. Yeah. Well, um, my history is not as long as yours, uh, probably not as illustrious as yours, uh, but it starts as a, uh, a person who really was seeking um, some some feeling of love. I didn't really know what it was when I was in high school, and uh, along came a what was then Campus Crusade for Christ uh, student ministry called Student Venture. Uh, one of their staff came and shared the gospel with me, and you know it made sense. Um, not so much the part of sin. I mean, that did make sense eventually. I think I was discipled more into understanding exactly how sinful I was. Uh, But the part of love, that God would love me in spite of who I was. And uh, he wasn't concerned about my, uh, well, he was concerned about my badness, but he, he, he did something for it. And, uh, and that was something that I was searching for somebody who would love me unconditionally. And so I, I came to Christ uh, back in 1980 and at a mighty burger restaurant in Houston, Texas. And uh, it really was a life changing experience and one that I wanted to share with my friends. So I can remember that next weekend, and instead of going out and party, partying uh, with my friends, I, I went out and evangelized them. And uh, honestly, I had no idea what I was talking about, except I had this experience with the Lord that I wanted other people to know about. And so I told them, and boy, I was ridiculed and laughed at, and uh, and that continued really for the rest of my high school uh, career. 
but but it was a life-changing experience for me. But anyway, um, I go from high school into the university of, eventually and worked with Campus Crusade for Christ uh, as a college student and then went on staff and worked in Eastern Europe in the Soviet Union for a number of years before uh, I moved to Romania where we did church planting, and I was part of uh, starting what was then a a new movement in the south-central part of the country, uh, where we were multiplying churches all across the southern uh, area, and seeing disciples multiply into other villages and, and so on. And so it was an exciting time. And then I got swept away into the world of the academic and uh, but even in that world, my focus was uh, studying religious movements because I'm fascinated by how movements start, uh, how they grow and how they're sustained. And so I studied uh, the, several new religious movements and my doctoral work was on a specific religious group trying to understand uh, who they were um, And that I mean, t- to make a long story uh, short. That's uh, that led me to where I am uh, today, and that is working with uh, the disciple making movements and church planting movements in mostly in in South Asia and trying to understand, again, how they're growing, but how we can sustain that growth. And in fact, how can we accelerate it without compromising uh, Christian orthodoxy? And uh, and that's what really motivated the book, uh, Ephesiology was getting my head around what is, I think, the most significant church in the New Testament, and that's the church in Ephesus. And I thought that if I could really understand that church on a deeper level, then maybe I can help to uh, to equip and train uh, movement leaders to have a good missiological and theological underpinning to what it is that they're doing. You know, one of the benefits, I think, of ephesiology is that I, I always look at the church in Antioch as, you know, kind of epicenter. Uh, we know that mm. Jerusalem, you know, the things that took place in Jerusalem, and there are still congregations in, in Syria that would, you know, rightly or wrongly trace their roots all the way back to what went on with, um, you know, those four leaders in Antioch. And, um, and yet Paul never wrote any letters to them. So we have this, 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 kind of microscopic view of, 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 of how all the dynamics come together. And it's been very, very useful to, to us. You know, I, mm-hmm. I read Galatians and Colossians, and honestly, I can get lost in the theology. I remember once teaching through Colossians for 20-some weeks, and I had my staff in rebellion uh, because I was trying to do the deep dive. But, but it seems to just be all kind of wrapped up in, in Ephesians. Uh, talk to us a little bit about couple things that got my attention was uh, your experiences in Romania. I'd like to hear just how that started and how it how it grew and how it got to where it got. And then I I feel the weakness in Hope Chapel as a as a movement. Right now all the churches are changing their names, which is kind of, you know, a lot of people kind of what are you, what are they doing these young guys come in and wreck everything and and I, and I go, no, this is exactly what we did in 1971. Uh, somebody gave us a, a, an empty church building. We immediately tore the signs off of it and uh, waited about six, eight, eight weeks to kind of let the neighborhood wonder what was going on and then threw up a new name. And, and I think each generation is going to kind of, you know, 
reflect itself as it engages the the word of God. I think the weakness was uh, we were part of a denomination that when we planted a church, they owned it. So we never really built a sustaining network. Uh, The the network has sustained itself. Oddly, the major players have stopped planting churches. (coughs) The, The two large churches I planted, but both are back at it. So after a hiatus, They've they've gone back to it. But the thing that we never did was really glue everything together other than the internet, books I wrote, whatever. It was kind of like, well, we gave you everything we have and you pass it on to somebody. And it was very organic. And I'm I'm pleased with that. But I also think there's a weakness in there. So talk to us about Romania and and take us into some depth. And then uh, uh, your observations from particularly South Asia and and how how we can do a better job. Yeah. Well, I, we're still working out that question, aren't we? How we can do a, a better job. And it's it's really a lifelong uh, pursuit. Um, well, Romania, our work in Romania began as an Antioch model. And I, I'm glad that you brought that up because so much of church planting, particularly in, the, in probably the 70s, 80s, and 90s, would appeal to Antioch as that church that, you know, set apart Paul and Barbara. Barnabas laid their hands on them and sent them out to plant churches. And, uh, and, and, and that was the model that we used um, in, in our context in Romania. At the time, I worked with uh, an evangelical free church in St. Louis, and they brought me on their staff as a result of a project that we did in Romania that uh, generated a number of people who indicated decisions for Christ. And we felt like that to be responsible, we needed to follow up uh, those decisions and to disciple people. And so they brought me on their staff. They laid their hands on me and they sent me out to to church plant. And I did that uh, willingly and gratefully and most excitedly, uh, perhaps in my youth. But uh, but I think I would probably do it again uh, because it really was an interesting time in the history of a what was a newly uh, post-communist country. And so we we uh, did the follow up. We uh, created a or gathered together a core team of people that I really built into uh, on a very regular basis, meeting several times a week. And then uh, we net, we built a, a larger group that would meet once a week, not as a church, but just in a discipleship ministry. And over time, as that group began to mature and and began to think about, you know, what what are we? Uh, could we be a church? Uh, are we a church? And we decided to take that step and say, you know what, we, we really are a church. And so let's let's take on more of the practices of a church. And so in, in 1991, summer of 1991, uh, we formalized, began to meet on Sunday mornings, began to practice baptism and communion and those were just some beautiful times to see people for the very first time in their lives understand what the practice of uh, taking the Lord's Supper was. And, uh, and to have the honor of, of baptizing people uh, was just something that was remarkable and, and certainly unforgettable. But I think, Ralph, what was most significant about those early days was that our church planting was done from zero. Um, we weren't interested in pulling people from the, there were only three other Protestant churches in the city where we were working. 
we weren't interested in seeing those people come to this new church. We were interested in seeing those who had come to Christ share the faith with their neighbors and their family and to see multiplication occur like that. And you know what? We did. We saw that. Uh, And um, yeah, it was just an amazing experience. I can remember when I first went to Romania, and I, I, I think I share a little bit about this in, in the book, that um, I met with my pastor. I had lived in outside of Munich at the time, and uh, I met with my pastor, and he said, you know, Michael, you have been on staff with Campus Crusade. You've, you've led discipleship groups. You were part of a very large ministry at, at Texas A&M. You know everything that you need to be a church planter. You know how to evangelize. You know, you know how to disciple. You know how to multiply those disciples. They now just gather them together. And so he sent me off with one theology book uh, to, to the country and said, just do what you know to, how to do. And, and we did that. And as a result, uh, a church started and uh, the vision was set for more churches to start. And we were taking those who had come to Christ to different cities with us to do evangelism in other cities. And people came to Christ and eventually um, a network of of seven initial churches started. And a couple of those ch- churches started multiplying into villages and so, yeah, it was just a, a, a neat time of seeing multiplication um, and that it actually it actually works. You know, it seems to me so much easier. Uh, we're so driven by budget in America. We, we kind of, you know, give somebody, I saw a budget the other day, $400,000 for the first year. And so much of that is, is marketing to other Christians and trying to get a crowd together so that you can have $500,000 income in the next year. And uh, we, you know, in Exponential, we've been kind of really pressing this microchurch bivocational model. Uh, You know, I'm so saddened by I mean, most churches in America are small, and pastors are underpaid, if paid at all. And uh, a lot of time, guys end up driving a school bus or doing some other rather meaningless job for just to make ends meet. And I'd much rather see somebody go to Costco and get some health benefits and, and a decent salary and then go make a couple disciples. And if it grows into a church, fine. If it just stays as a small discipling relationship, that's also fine. Uh, that much better than this business of, of of just gathering a bunch of Christians. I I talked to a, mm-hmm. a, a man who had been really caught up in the seeker driven movement recently, and he, um, you know, that's kind of deflated and the the numbers are down. And he said, you know, I can't remember the last time that we that we actually brought someone to Christ and baptize them. And that's kind of the sad story of, of America. But when I, I look at what you did, what we've tried to do, it, it just seems so simple. Just, you know, I, I think that we kind of got confused and convoluted the concept of evangelism, go preach and get somebody saved at some big meeting and and then we'll disciple them. Uh, your own description of, of your life, somebody discipled you before you knew what sin was all about. Uh, that we would disciple somebody into Christ seems to be the right thing. And then if it, if you know, when you describe something that you eventually had to call it a church, that, that seems the, 
you got everything in the right order to me. Respond to that. Yeah, well, I, I think so. I um, And I see that's what was going on in the New Testament as well. Um, I, I think they probably had a little bit clearer idea of what the church was than what we had, uh, or perhaps a better biblical idea of what the church was than we had. But, but yeah, I think that, I mean, if we're talking about church planting and the multiplication of disciples, evangelism, sometimes we get those things mixed up. And so often the trend today is, particularly in North America, is that people just want to start a church. And so they'll, they'll take, they'll take a, a small group from their church. They might gather others from other churches and they'll start a new church that meets on Sunday. And, and uh, it doesn't necessarily add to the kingdom in terms of the numbers of disciples, but it does add a, a new congregation. And interestingly enough, um, over, well, since the 1950s in the United States, we've, we have actually seen the number of congregations grow uh, over the course of that history. That 2019 was the first time that we saw a decline in the number of congregations, uh, not even because of COVID, but for other factors. But we've seen a growth of congregations at the same time that we see a decline in membership and a decline of people actually identifying as Christians. And so that, I think, at least for me, has raised the question, is church planting, at least the way in which we're doing it now, is it the most effective uh, evangelistic strategy as as what Peter Wagner said uh, back in 1990? And I think if we're to think of church planting just simply as starting something on Sunday, then it's absolutely not the most effective strategy. But if we think of church planting as being a Monday through Sunday event where we're in our communities, we're talking with people about the gospel, we're, we're seeing people come to Christ, we're discipling them and they're multiplying. And that leads to a uh, congregation that meets on Sunday and, and, uh, and has the characteristics of the New Testament church, then absolutely it can be very effective as a strategy. But we've we've gotten it mixed up. And uh, I think a part of the reason why, and I'd love to hear your thoughts on this too, but I think a part of the reason why is that we just have these incredible models of churches or examples of churches, the, the Saddlebacks, the Willow Creeks, uh, the Village Church, and, and so on. Uh, the the, the uh, Mars Hill has been popular for people to talk about recently. Um, that have attracted thousands of people. And we look at those models and we say, you know what, we want to replicate that model. And and so they do the things that they're doing right now on Sunday mornings without really doing the hard work uh, that, that, for example, um, uh, for example, that, um, oh my goodness, Rick Warren did before Saddleback even started. And that was understanding the culture and engaging people with the gospel and seeing people uh, come to Christ. And so we, we've gotten it backwards. We, we want the glitz and the glamour of that Sunday service without the hard work of talking with people about the gospel and discipling them in the Lord and seeing multiplication occur. You know, we've confused uh, Sunday service is an event. It's not a church. Yeah. And what, what Rick Warren did is the thing that I always point to, you know, because I'm talking about micro church. So when Rick started, it was a micro church. It meant yeah. two bedroom apartment. And uh, if it wants to grow to 17,000, that's great. If it, if it grows to 15 people who love each other and, and are sharing Jesus and reproducing their 
their little group, whatever they call it, then I think that's probably even better. And uh, yeah, it just, it, it's, it saddens me when I look at the statistics, it's, you know, I'm doing a training series with some guys called doing church in a post-Christian era. And um, we, we really are in one. And this business of 30% of the people are interested in what we do on Sunday morning. And so we play musical chairs with those people. We're not really getting ahead but what we, what, but but I'm really hopeful because I'm I'm seeing I'm actually because of exponential I get exposed to a lot of young guys and it's really wonderful because I'm seeing guys that are coming out of seminary going I don't want to do that big institutional thing I I want to get a, a career and I'm and and I'm going to start with a couple of people and we'll just see where it goes and I think that's a a very very it's very hopeful to me because I'm seeing a, a fair number of people I'm not seeing a big movement. But I'm seeing here and there, I'm, I'm bumping into guys that are going, no, this is where I'm going. And I, I think that it's the seeds of something really, really good. Tell us a little bit about um, sustainable movements and, and, and your references to South Asia, particularly. You know, I did a lot of work in um, pretty much Sri Lanka, Tonga. I, I've, I've been to Tonga three times and couldn't get anything going there. But I, I, I spent quite a bit of time in, in Myanmar and Nepal and uh, Mongolia. And both in, in Nepal and Mongolia, we've seen movements started. When, when the Soviets left Mongolia, they said there were five people who they would call Christians. Mm-hmm. I got there when about 1% of the population would identify with Christ and and they begin to plant churches. And I, I kind of watch this from afar. And uh, a little bit of it models the American big church deal. But a lot of it is more grassroots. I've been in a, a gear, what we call a yurt, the round tent, that moved with the grasses. And, uh, and, and I met with about 18 believers in a, in a church. The shepherd, who was the pastor, couldn't read. And, and I, I watched this medical doctor who had become a pastor, resigned his practice, uh, young young guy. He was probably thirty years old at the time, and uh, they had he had fought me. I'd gone in teaching church, you know, planting, and he he fought against that. He wanted to be the Bill Hybels of Mongolia, and then he decided to be a church planter, and he planted seven churches in one year from a congregation of about one hundred and fifty. Wow. And but here we are, and we all go to this village. We drive them twenty two miles or twenty two hours along the edge of the Gobi Desert to get to this place we had to camp out by a river and tents and instantly he's off on on a rock talking to this man for hours we couldn't get his attention it's like what do we do we're you know we're we're the americans we showed up we're important all that you know you do when you go on missionary trips and he's so busy discipling this man who cannot read who's pastoring this congregation uh, is one of the most impressive things I've ever, ever seen. But mm. talk, talk to us from, from, from your studies and perhaps experience uh, about why some movements are sustainable and they continue to maximize and others don't. Yeah. Yeah. Well, to, um, let me let me uh, give the the quick outline of of the ephesiology book because that's I think how we get to sustainability. Yes. If we leapfrog over over uh, what we see in the New Testament, then we really can shortcut uh, what could be a sustainable project uh, uh, movement. I think it starts with having a good understanding of how to effectively engage the community where uh, you want to see a church start. 
And so that takes a, a deep cultural understanding, uh, understanding the, the history of the culture, understanding, of course, if you're an expat missionary, understanding the language, uh, but understanding the issues and asking the question, really, two questions. One is, how is the good news really good news in that culture? And then secondly, how can we connect the stories of Jesus in a way that that culture is going to connect with who Jesus is? And when we answer those two questions, then we, we build a good uh, launch pad to engage uh, the community or the culture with the gospel. And from there, then it, we have to have a good theological underpinning. And by a theological underpinning, I don't mean that everybody needs a seminary education um, or a degree or, or something like that. But, but if we don't have that good theological foundation that is built upon uh, a, a solid understanding of who Christ is and what the mission of the church is, then we can very easily go sideways as we continue and, and try to see a movement grow. And so that's critical in sustaining a movement is having that uh, theological underpinning. And that, that should rise out of the culture. Uh, one of the, one of the uh, issues that we are challenged by when, when we as Westerners are going into other cultures is that we tend to bring our theology with us and impose it on the culture without it allowing, without us allowing a theology emerge out of that culture. And what I've seen from that is that we often bring theological issues that just simply don't make sense in other cultures. And we, we don't address theological issues that really make sense in those cultures. And so um, a part of that theological underpinning is allowing culture to emerge from the soil of the, the culture so that it becomes indigenous. And then it's, then it's leadership. Um, how is that movement going to be led? Uh, how will it be structured in such a way that it will continue to catalyze growth and not slow that growth down? And um, in, in Ephesiology, I talk about how the New Testament uh, structure of the church was at some level uh, flat um, and very much formed around Ephesians 4 and the uh, apostle, prophet, evangelist, shepherd, teacher, and how that, the, the, that group of leaders worked together to equip the saints. And so leadership primarily is focused on uh, equipping the saints caring for those saints and making sure that they stay historically orthodox, as well as uh, uh, making sure that things are administered uh, properly and, uh, and healthily. Um, and so leadership then, and then the multiplication, if you're not multiplying, you're not going to get to movement. And so a part of a healthy, sustained movement is going to be seeing continued uh, multiplication. And I often describe that multiplication and the type of leader that will see multiplication uh, from Second Timothy. That that's a leader who will empower people to use their gifts. They'll genuinely entrust them, not micromanage them. Um, it's going to be a leader who says, you know what, God has gifted you, the Holy Spirit that lives in you lives in me as well. And so go do the things that the Holy Spirit has equipped you to do and empowered you to do. Um, but it's also inspiring them. 
that, you know, I love when Paul writes to Timothy uh, to join in the suffering, that we do this together. And so leadership is inspiring. And if we as leaders aren't doing the things that we're calling those we disciple to do, then that doesn't, that doesn't seem very inspiring. And so I think a leadership that continues to engage that culture, continues to uh, be involved in evangelism is important. And then, of course, reminding those disciples to continue to preach the word in season and out. And I think those really are foundational to seeing a movement sustained. If you enjoyed today's podcast, be sure to subscribe and check his blog at ralphmoore.net.